Hey everyone, welcome back to the 443 Security Simplified. I'm your host, Mark the Liberty, and joining me today is... Corey, something in awe, Nockreiner. There you go. On today's episode, we will be discussing a small town in Italy, a zero-day vulnerability in a very popular wiki software, and a country that just can't seem to catch a break. Uh, with that, let's go ahead and, uh, I don't know, let's walk on in today. I'm a little lazy. <laughs> Uh, so last Monday, as you are listening to this, I guess, yeah, last Monday as you're listening to this, Microsoft disclosed CVE 2022-30190, which I'm sure within five minutes you all have forgot will have forgotten that number. Uh, but uh, this vulnerability was a remote code execution flaw in Microsoft Windows Support Diagnostic Tool, or shorthand known as MSDT, uh, which researchers named Folina. Uh, because of uh, they, they they called the vulnerability Folina, not yeah. the Microsoft Windows right. Diagnostic Tool Folina. Yeah. Uh, although now, if you try and search for that term, all you get is Folina. But anyways, they, they, the reason they named it was actually kind of interesting because in the actual one of the uh, exploits that we'll get into in just a second, there is a number zero four three eight, which I guess is the area code for Folina in Italy. So whatever. I mean, hey, was it an Italian researcher? It was Kevin Beaumont. Is he Italian? I don't huh. think he is. I guess not. <laughs> yeah. We all I, know Kevin. There have been dumber names for vulnerabilities, so I'm just going to move past that one. Um, but so for those that aren't familiar with it, MSDT, it's that utility that lets Microsoft Windows collect system information and send it back to Microsoft for diagnostics uh, for issues like if you're having problems with hardware or device drivers or applications, it can go grab information about your system and ship it off. Um, this tool, you can open it just by launching it like any other program on Windows, um, or you can open it with a URI protocol handler. Uh, specifically, it registers to ms-msdt. Uh, so URL, URI protocol handlers, that's how applications on Windows and Mac um, can register to open just by clicking a link. So you're probably all used to opening up Zoom now by clicking an invite out of a, a calendar reminder or uh, an email message body. Uh, that link is actually zoom colon whack and then some information that the application uses to connect to the actual meeting and these uri protocol handlers are used by all sorts of applications opening up teams opening up word documents and opening up local files with file colon yep <laughs> so basically any application can register with the operating system as a handler for that protocol and so for the most part they tend to set up their uh their own oh really siri you can't understand that um was that your siri or my google assistant deciding that it couldn't understand me whatever i, I didn't hear it <laughs> i didn't hear it so i'm guessing it must have been on your end i must be going insane so uri protocol handlers um you can hey, use siri find mental health counselor for mark the liberty <laughs> whatever we'll do it live um uri protocol handlers like most applications <laughs> Thanks, Siri. <laughs> most, most applications register like their own unique ones. It's like Zoom obviously uses Zoom. Uh, MSDT uses MS-MSDT. Sometimes you can get shared ones. Uh, so for example, with like a Excel spreadsheet or like a CSV file, you could potentially register 
something for both Excel or like the numbers uh, application on Mac. Um, but in this case, this protocol handler is just used for MSDT. So backing up uh, back in on May 27th, so this was the Friday before the disclosure, uh, a researcher on Twitter posted a screenshot of some code that they found in a malicious Word document. And that code abused Word's remote templating feature to basically retrieve a HTML file from a remote web server, uh, which then used that MS, MSDT protocol URI scheme to launch the encode, an encoded PowerShell script. And there are a few like frightening things about this. So it works even if macros are disabled. Uh, for the most part, I, I would like to think that users are starting to recognize that enabling macros probably isn't the best idea. In this case, it doesn't matter if they're enabled or not. Uh, it is at least blocked by protected view. Uh, so Microsoft Office has that feature protected view where if you download a document uh, directly from the internet or as an attachment to an email message from like Outlook, when you it sets a flag in there. And when you attempt to open it up, you see that this is in read only in order to uh, uh, enable content or edit, you need to enable editing basically. Yeah. Um, so that does at least block the execution. But uh, if you change the document to an RTF form instead, uh, it will even run without even opening the document. You can run just by previewing it in Explorer, which is kind of nuts. Like that's that's bad juju right there. Um, where you know, basically all you need to do is download it and like hover over it, and that's it. Um, so I wonder, does Microsoft take RTF? I guess it would depend on operating systems. I assume on Windows, uh, if you have Office installed, it becomes the default for the RTF extension. I'm 90% sure it is because um, I've at least opened, yeah, no, I've that opened is scary. And they did myself. The researcher definitely mentioned the RTF thing. So yeah, this, that, that makes it a, a non-click, non-user interaction vulnerability other than, of course, having the document and at least previewing it or hovering yep. over it. So it turns out like this exact issue was reported to Microsoft back in April uh, when a researcher noticed a similar document, uh, this one targeting users in Russia that had been uploaded to VirusTotal that exploited the same issue. But Microsoft actually kicked it back and closed that ticket saying it wasn't a vulnerability. Um, so it wasn't until just this last week where some more examples of that really started being uh, becoming visible that they realized, oh, this is potentially a serious issue we need to fix, that you could execute Python, or not Python, PowerShell using this protocol handler, basically. Um, so since the announcement, uh, there's been a whole bunch of different threat actors that have begun exploiting this vulnerability. Basically, all the nation-state ones you'd expect have started uh, using it now, too. By the way, I, I wanted to pause on that. It's kind of a... I, we give Microsoft a lot of kudos for trustworthy computing. Has, they, they do tend to take security seriously, but I I think it's kind of funny that they... Not funny, just uh, surprising that they closed the ticket. I know. You know, especially if it was reported from VirusTotal, that means it was active malware. So to just decide it wasn't vulnerable, even though someone had uploaded a sample that was doing something, uh, it feels like a screw up in some way. Yeah, it really, I mean, you have to wonder which level one triaging rep saw this and decided to close uh, it out without investigating or 
Uh, I'm sure it's an honest mistake. Yeah. I mean, I, I do still think Microsoft is pushing strong for security, but I'm, I am kind of surprised well, by that. Well, it seems like this is like intended behavior. It's just now we're realizing the security ramifications yeah, of it. The PowerShell connection was probably the surprise to them. Exactly. Um, so as of this recording, though, uh, the vulnerability still remains unpatched. Um, but Microsoft has given out guidance on how on some temporary mitigations um, in the form of disabling that MSDT URI protocol handler uh, using the Windows registry. Now, if you look up their uh, KB for CVE 2022-30190, you'll see they basically give you a couple of uh, registry uh, commands, one to back up the uh, H key cl uh, classes root MS-MDT registry key, and then one to delete it, uh, which basically disables that protocol registration. The reason you back it up is because once the patch is out, you can restore that functionality just by restoring that exported uh, registry key. Um, but pretty serious zero-day vulnerability, and it's not often that we see yeah, sure. them come out like this completely unpatched from Microsoft, or at least quickly responded to. And I mean, it, it happens, that, but they did is, a quick response. That's nice. Correct. That, it, it isn't a dig on Microsoft because this is one where it is actively being exploited. Like there's samples all over VirusTotal. There was literally someone tweeting out the actual exploit that they had discovered. And so it's yeah. not a dig on Microsoft, but it, it is pretty rare. Like you said, they've been doing a lot of focus on security. Um, and so something like this popping up is is becoming more rare, which makes it more interesting when it does. Although we say it's rare, I think you maybe you're talking in context of Microsoft. Correct. But wow, yes. <laughs> it seems to be a theme this week. Uh, we'll get into that even more. But yeah, Zero no, it's uh, it's 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 interesting to uh, whenever they do out of cycle announcements like this, not on Patch Tuesday, it's usually a big deal like this. But I think their response is great. It's great that it at least has an easy registry mitigation. I guess we'll talk about something else where the mitigation isn't <laughs> quite that easy. Uh, uh, but yeah, at least there's an easy registry mitigation that, you know, we do it ourselves as a security team for WatchGuard, and there seems to be no harm other than people that actually handle these types of support diagnostic or, you know, these files might have to do it manually for a bit. If you but, uh, are a WatchGuard customer, like EPDR and Panda8360 both have new rules in there to catch an attempted exploit of this. If you use Panda's systems manager, engine. Yeah. Yep. if you use Panda systems manager, there's actually a pre-made component available in there now that has the mitigation in it. Basically you install that component and run it as a job and it'll take care of mitigating across your host. So you've got plenty of options now. Uh, even if you aren't a, a WatchGuard customer, most of the major uh, EDR vendors have some sort of mitigation as well too. That said, I think you should, for like uh, phishing safety, you should just reiterate the advice that you should already be giving your users that they have to be careful with office documents or text, like rich text files. Uh, you need to be, if it's unsolicited, if it's coming from someone you don't know and it has a PowerPoint, a spreadsheet or a Word document, you probably shouldn't handle it unless you talk to the whoever that person is and figure out what's really going on or have really deep, you know, I tend to run things through APT blocker. Just be tell your users not to handle unsolicited Word documents. But the secondary advice here is don't forget that spoofing, hopefully you have things like, a, you know, a DKIM, uh, and DMARC with SPF also set up on your email server, so not many people can directly spoof your addresses. But then, of course, there's the slightly altered email addresses. 
be careful of unsolicited documents, even from people you know and work with. You know, make sure that it's really coming from the right email address. And if someone sends you something you weren't expecting, you know, there might be documents that people send each other every day in work that you do expect, so you don't have to think about. But if you weren't expecting it, maybe ask about it when there's a zero day like this, because as you mentioned, just previewing something uh, or definitely opening it from an email attachment could be dangerous when there's a day like this out there. Yeah, that's the bit that's nuts is that even just downloading it and previewing it is enough for this specific one. And like there are other ways to get around that protected view too. Like even uh, if it's enclosed in a zip file, that flag doesn't potentially get set when you download it. So you can open it and things can potentially execute. So uh like Corey said like it basically boils down to treat things with skepticism that you receive over email especially unsolicited um so as Corey was hinting at this is not the only zero day vulnerability that went unpatched uh in the last it's week. almost hard to decide which one's worse like i feel like the one we just talked about everyone uses office and it has a pretty low barrier to to work without user interaction but this one seems pretty big too for other reasons. Yeah. Let's get into it. So by the time you're listening to this, hopefully Atlassian has already released an update uh, to patch a critical remote code execution vulnerability in Confluence server and data center that researchers at the incident response firm Velocity, Velocity with an X, uh, have found actively exploited in the wild. Um, so basically, Velocity first discovered this issue while doing an incident response investigation of a compromised server that was running Confluence. Confluence being the really pretty massively popular corporate wiki software that a lot of uh, technical organizations like WatchGuard included use as a form, uh, a way to keep track of documentation across the whole company. Um, so they discovered a variant of the China Chopper uh, JSP web shell that had been deployed on one of those Confluence server systems. And they were able to identify through memory analysis the bash script um, and bash shells that were being launched by the Confluence web application process. Um, so understandably, they didn't share all the details about the exploit. They said they're not going to release a public POC for it, um, even though they had built one just to confirm the issue. Uh, but they did say that the attackers launched a single exploit attempt against each Confluence server system, which in turn loaded a malicious class in memory the attackers then use this to load the behinder in-memory web shell, from which they deployed two additional web shells to disk, one being the China Chopper one, and the other being a custom uh, file upload shell. And both Confluence and Velocity disclosed the existence of this vulnerability without details on Thursday, uh, even though no patch was available, simply to give administrators a chance to mitigate the threat by restricting access to their Confluence deployments. Basically, Confluence's advisory was saying there's no patch available yet we're working hard on it in the meantime pull the plug basically yeah it pulled the plug or put it behind a vpn uh obviously a lot of people because you know we we talked in the past about management portals confluence isn't a man like this isn't a that authentication isn't a management portal it's a normal user portal that you have to authenticate into uh you know meaning People can publicly see, you know, depending on how you have Confluence, you're either using hosted, which isn't affected by this, or you have a server, you probably have a domain, and a lot of people just put that publicly on the internet with the authentication portal. And the feeling is, by the way, an a, a semi-accurate feeling is 
That's all HTTPS, TLS encryption. That's very strong. So you have encrypted connection to it. So you have security there. And if you have an authentication portal, you can add MFA to it. So you're all good, right? You have MFA on remote access to this public portal and it's encrypted. Sounds good until an unauthenticated vulnerability comes along. So I think one thing you should think about is whether these portals to things like Confluence, GitHub, Tab, all these like a SaaS-ish, I guess they're not SaaS if you're not using the hosted version, but these on-prem versions of very popular apps that are web-based public web apps, you might want to consider adding the slight inconvenience of doing something like a SSL VPN portal. Don't publish your Confluence domain publicly, have it on a private address, uh, have something like SSL VPN. So you have a single authentication point where you can also add MFA and that way everyone on the internet get, can't get to it. So if you did have it public, you know, taking it down is probably the best thing you could have done at the time. Uh, but the, another thing is if you're behind a VPN, if you're not making that public, you could be protected from unauthed phones like this. By the way, little update, Mark, and you didn't know this because we literally it happened when there was a 10 a.m. Pacific time. So for you guys, this happened long ago as you're listening, but they do have a patch for this now. Uh, Confluence has just released. So this is Friday, if you're curious, a day after. There are now patches out as well. So by the time you listen to this, you can definitely get one of those patches, which is obviously the best fix. Good, yeah. Um, this isn't like the first vulnerability like this that Confluence has had either. And so it does seem to be an application you don't potentially want exposed to the internet. And yeah, not I, I, I think we, like you said, it happens to any kind of application like this too, all the time. And I, I it definitely makes me reevaluate because as security folks, you're definitely thinking, okay, why do I need additional encryption on something that's already encrypted and already authenticated with MFA? That seems fine, right? But if you don't add, you know, it's definitely making me rethink that even as a CSO, that yes, but it's all application, you know, you're still relying on the web application for the authentication. So any vulnerability in that application that's unauthenticated immediately becomes a problem. And it's a problem that VPN can solve. So I think a lot of organizations were kind of weighing the risk of it's so much easier for people everywhere in the world, especially in the pandemic and, and now hybrid work environment, to just put this publicly to make it easy for my users to get in there. And I feel like I have good security because of encryption and MFA. But this kind of alters that because you got to remember, it's if you remember, it's right why you don't trust a Windows firewall. And you, you want a firewall beyond that because if Windows has a TCP stack problem, no matter how good their firewall is, their underlying, the thing actually actually running it is vulnerable. So in this case, all these web applications are someone else's code. And the second they have unauthenticated vulnerabilities, all bets are off. So it might be good to maybe subtract some of the convenience and make them less public. And I think SSL VPN is a cool way to, you know, a lot of times old school folks like me go to IPsec, which is typically a client and setting something up and connecting to something before. But I think with SSL VPN, which you is like all the HTTP, clientless version of it, right? Specifically. Exactly. The clientless version of SSL VPN, you can turn it into just a, a tab on your authentication portal. It, it, you have a method of adding a easy VPN on top of it that's less disruptive, but still getting the benefit of not making the portal public to everyone. 
for WatchGuard customers, that's Access Portal, and it's basically you authenticate to that, and then it acts as a proxy, like a reverse proxy is another word that's thrown around with it, to the yep. actual application so that that application isn't exposed directly to the internet. You have to authenticate into the Access Portal first, which is just one additional layer of protection, and you click a button and you gain access to it, usually with SSO along the way too, so you don't have to auth twice uh, to get into that system. So that is a very clean way of doing it. Um, but at a minimum, like pulling these sorts of apps off the internet directly and having them accessible yeah. only via a VPN of some sort does seem to be the correct approach going forward. And if you do want to make them public, you just need to account for the fire drill of if there is a flaw like this, you know, if you're not willing to take that convenience hit, just realize, you know, if this were just a vulnerability without a wild exploit, it may not have been a big deal. But if there's an exploit in the wild, you probably want to act fast. So if you're not going to take that step, you're going to have to figure out, can I just drop it for hours or even days at a time if something like that happens? Yeah. And like you said, having that plan from the beginning is a very good thing to have. So you're not trying to figure uh -huh. out in the moment. If you do have a fire drill, you at least can act against something you already have planned out. Because hopefully everyone listening to this has a good bcdr plan BCDR to go along plan? with all of their incident response <laughs> and event handling plans too yes and uh, wow maybe they even have tested it with tabletops wouldn't that be awesome uh it's <laughs> we're not living in that future quite yet <laughs> <laughs> um so moving on uh man costa rica has been having a pretty rough couple of months uh, so just last week they suffered another ransomware attack this time targeting the country's public health agency uh, forcing them to shut down all of their systems to limit its spread. Uh, this follows an attack back that started back in April uh, by the Conti ransomware uh, family that targeted multiple government agencies, including the financial ministry, which still has not fully recovered. Uh, folks in Costa Rica right now are having to pay taxes manually by uh, bringing money to a bank instead of the digital system that they're normally used to. Uh, patients and healthcare and hospital systems are all using paper-based systems now, which is causing issues with filling prescriptions and receiving care. Uh, this latest attack uh, comes from the family called Hive, which we'll get into in just a little bit and how they potentially relate to Conti. And they're demanding a $5 million Bitcoin payment in order to restore access back to these systems. Um, and other interesting tidbits from this, some employees reported that during the initial ransomware attack, the, it was causing printers on the network to begin printing out just garbage walls of ASCII text as well, too, um, which kind of falls that's in line. New. With, yeah. <laughs> that, that's like more a scare tactic. Like I, I, I don't, for ransomware, it's hard to see the point of that other than to, just to illustrate we own you. Well, I mentioned uh, Hive's kind of links to Conti, where researchers at Advintel actually believe members of the Conti ransomware group have migrated to Hive in an attempt to evade like sanctions and crackdowns and stuff. And the reason I bring that up is because this does seem to be kind of in line with their modus of operandi and that Conti goes above and beyond just like a ransomware attack and that they straight up start like threatening you over social media as well. Like they in the attack that they launched in April, they included threats uh, that they wanted to overthrow the Costa Rican government. Basically, they said, quote, just pay before it's too late. Your country was destroyed by two people. We are determined to overthrow the government by means of cyber attack. Uh, while demanding like a $10 million extortion at that point. Uh, the U.S. President, uh, President Biden uh, enacted a $10 million, or I guess his DOJ gave out a, or 
set up a $10 million bounty, basically, on any information that could lead to the arrest of Conti members. In response to that, they called the U.S. president a terrorist and updated their ransom demands to $20 million now. Like, they're very uh, overt out there with their threats. And so the scare yeah. tactic of printing out a bunch of garbage from all the printers while your computers are getting encrypted seems very in line with what I would expect from them. By the way, this doesn't add to the story, but it's interesting to me just looking at the history of hacker profiles. You know, I, I remember in the mid, you know, well before 2022, let's say the 2000s to the 2010s, while obviously they're cyber criminals, back then we were just learning about state-sponsored hackers, meaning governments, but there were hacktivists. And hacktivists, as you can guess, is just activists and hackers. And while this obviously has a criminal element, I mean, I, I would still bucket this in criminal element if you're doing ransom. Uh, it's leaning towards hacktivism too, because obviously this, this, these people may have political motives in Costa Rica, which is interesting. So I feel like for the past 10 years, hacktivists have gone away. The like Greenpeace hackers or anonymous was considered a hacktivist with operations against Scientology and some governments based that were dictatorships. Uh, so it's just, to me, it seems like a kind of a sign. I wonder if hacktivism will come back. I mean, we're in a point where nation state hacking is definitely a thing. State sponsored hacking is all over the place. And often hackers are kind of the opposite of state. You know, they're the ones that are kind of against some states. So you I could wonder argue if hacktivism will start rising again. I'd, I would label Conti as a hacktivist organization at this point. Like they've pretty firmly aligned themselves with the Russian government. Uh, yeah. saying they're going to go after enemies of the Russian government, basically, yeah. as uh, punishment for the, the sanctions that are being imposed on them. So, yeah, they are straight up hacktivists. And like, like I said, it, it this basically all these threats and stuff like that really falls in line with what I'd expect. It's really stinks the way, for Costa the Rica right now. The way I would draw the line is if it's the Russian government is literally the group, then it would be state-sponsored. But if these are Russian citizens that Which I think aren't necessarily the associated, then definitely hacktivists. With Russia, it's always hard to tell, though, because we, we know <laughs> there's... We, we know the, the ransomware groups in Russia aren't necessarily state-sponsored directly, but they seem to be state-ignored. <laughs> I mean, yes, there is a recent thing where Putin did crack a little bit down on some groups, but you know what they mean? They're not state-sponsored 100%, but Russia certainly turns a blind eye to them. Meanwhile, yeah, there's... Interesting indeed. On the flip side, there are ransomware groups that are straight up state sponsored, like Lazarus Absolutely. out of North Korea is literally yeah. a way for them to earn revenue for their country. Yeah, I think it's interesting how North Korea is one of the few. I mean, most state sponsored actors are doing maybe naughty things if they come from enemy states, but they at least are not trying to steal money necessarily. North Korea seems to be the difference, the one yeah. that will literally do criminal activities. I get it. They're I mean, I don't get the ethics of it, but they're sanctioned. You know, they're, they're I feel horrible for their poor citizens. Uh, but yeah, it's, it's definitely interesting how North Korea or Lazarus is the one that actually does real criminal things to make money as actual state. And that is a good point. Like uh, the Russian government is, I mean, obviously not to the same degree as North Korea, but they are struggling pretty hard economically now too with sanctions. You wonder I how wonder. long it'll take for yeah. them to begin 
doing some like of I'm not saying that state-sponsored actors like indirectly it's usually espionage and they might be doing things politically that indirectly help their economy but it, yeah it's rare where they directly steal cash but I think you're right I mean as sanctions really kick in with Russia will we ever see a change there that's a good thing maybe maybe we have our 2023 prediction mark <laughs> Russia joins North Korea <laughs> or Russia be Russia starts becoming cyber criminal in motivation I don't know Fancy Bear starts hacking crypto exchanges. There you go. <laughs> Either way, though, like, man, it's been a rough couple of months for Costa Rica. They've been getting hit left and right by these ransomware attacks. And it's taken like it has literally been, I think, three weeks since that first one. And they're still not fully recovered in any capacity for some of their ministries. Um, yeah, and still seem to be targeting the, you know, these uh, big game ransoms. Healthcare has been on the top of the list for the past seven years. So I, I guess if uh, if you're in Costa Rica, definitely be aware. But if you're a health agency, you definitely need to have good cybersecurity protections. And before we, uh, before we sign off ahead. from the story, like, what do you think? Do you think the strategy of communicating directly with citizens is going to be potentially effective for them like because obviously it's hurting Why Costa Rican citizens too so could we call that quadruple ransom you know <laughs> if, if the original ransom is asking for money if double ransom is uh as saying you'll leak their data uh, a, tri a, a triple ransom is going after customers if you're literally telling every citizen in the world that you hacked their government is that quadruple telling ransom? Telling them to overthrow the government in order to get the But the yeah, access to I mean to answer back. your question more directly instead of pivoting to us coining a stupid new infosec thing I, I mean, yeah, I, to me it's just a pressure tactic. It's good psychology to you know, if you're helping the citizens know how much you screwed, it, you just even put more pressure on them for trying to fix it. And if they are in a bind, if they haven't been able to restore, maybe that pressures them even more to pay money. I, yeah, I don't know. It's uh, I, I guess what do what does President Bush call Desert Storm? Ah, uh, what's it called? <laughs> So when you attack things shock with and awe. And shock and awe yeah maybe it's the shock and awe portion of the attack Come on, i was like nine years old when that happened and even i know yeah it. and you'd see you remembered <laughs> it and i that's because i'm pop pop cory and i'm losing my memory actually a bit older than nine i gotta give myself some credit but still <laughs> either way like i hopefully costa rica is able to recover soon without having to pay the ransomware five demands. million like i would like to think that other nations like the u.s could potentially help them out with recovery efforts i mean at least we're trying to go after the the criminals they're going that are hitting them but that's they've had a bit of a rough time so hopefully they're able to recover soon and get things back online for sure for sure um so anyways uh, i guess that's it if you uh yeah. if you're running confluence make sure you install that patch if you're using microsoft office watch for a patch and disable those uh that that protocol handler and if you live in costa rica man i'm sorry and hopefully the week you're listening to this won't be a zero day week like it was last week i'm ready for a nice and easy week with no hacks at all yeah that would be cool someday hey isn't it summer hackers can't you go on summer break <laughs> please Go to Siberia and hang out. That's what you deserve. Hey, everyone. Thanks again for listening. As always, if you enjoyed today's episode, don't forget to rate, review, and subscribe. If you have any questions on today's topics or suggestions for future episode topics, you can reach out to us on Twitter. I'm at XORRO underscore. 
Corey is at SecondEpt, and the both of us are at hashtag the443podcast. Thanks again for listening, and you will see us or hear from us next week. When there's a new fire drill... <laughs> That's great. Okay. <laughs>